The world hates us. And you look in, in John 15, verse 18, and Christ says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And whoever hates me hates my father also. I want you to understand, Christ says if the world loves you, it's because you're like them. But if you're like him, the world will hate you because it hated him first. So the world hates you. And again, it may not surprise you. Uh, it's, a, it's a hostile world to Christianity. We see this more and more. All right, in the United States even. Now, in, in other parts of the world, definitely so. I have a map in my classroom that, that shows the various persecuted nations and where Christianity is restricted, where it's actively persecuted. But even here in the United States, the views of Christianity are becoming less and less popular. Again, not surprising if you turn to Second Timothy chapter 3. It's, it's to be expected, not only because of who our Lord is and what he stood for, but in Second Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. I hope you understand, as Paul writes this, he's talking about the church and what will be present in the church in the last days. So you have a world that's becoming more and more hostile. Why? Because you're in the last days. Now, I don't know when Christ is going to return. No one does. I can't, you know, do, you have these guys who do these prophecy uh, conferences, or at least they used to, and because Israel was doing, you know, X, Y, Z, that means Jesus is coming tomorrow. Look, we don't know. But we know it's the last days. We know that time is short. Whether per the rapture or per the grave, life is short. And these are, again, the last days. So how are we as Christians to respond to this, do we, do we cower in our churches and let the world steamroll us? You know, there's an old hymn uh, that we used to sing. I've sung in other places, and, and, and be honest with you, maybe I don't understand it, but I really don't like it, called Hold the Fort. And the whole song was Hold the Fort, for I am coming. And, and, and it's the idea that, that, man, we're in this fort and we're besieged, and if we could just hold out till Jesus comes, we'll be rescued. Look, I want you to understand the gospel is not about waiting for Jesus to come to rescue us. It's about going out and conquering the world in the name of Christ. Not by force of arms, but by the power of an idea, by the power of the cross. It was never intended for us to sit behind the walls of the church and wait for deliverance. 
when Christ says in Matthew 16, 18, and he's telling Peter that he's going to build this church and against it, the gates of hell will not prevail. I want you to understand in that context, gates are a defensive position for hell. And what Jesus is saying is when you go and attack, the gates of hell even won't be held against you. And a lot of us think that Jesus said, look, if you'll follow me, the gates of the church won't be breached. That's not the passage. That's not the text. So how should we as Christians respond to a hostile world? We should, as you saw maybe on the marquee or thing, essentially man up. And yes, I'm appealing to a stereotype there. should man up. We should be courageous. We should take action. We should go out the doors and, and let the world know in a sense that the power of Christ resides within us and the gates of hell will not prevail against the power of Christ. In a hostile world, it's time to go and conquer. So if you turn 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, my main text. I love this passage. It's just two verses, but I think Paul lays out here this idea to the church at Corinth. In Corinth, it was, it was not an easy thing to be a Christian in the city of Corinth, a wicked city, a terrible city, a city so bad it makes Vegas look righteous. All right, If you were to call somebody a Corinthian, it, it, it is the same in today's terminology as calling them uh, some of the really terrible words. Uh, slut. Same term. Corinth, Corinthian, not an easy place to be a Christian. And Paul says in verse 13, as he's closing out in the midst of all these personal introductions, he sort of fires off, in a couple of verses here, fires off a missive for them, a manifesto. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. I want to give you today, again, how we as Christians should live in a hostile world. What's our responsibility? And that first one, we should be watchful. We should be watchful. That word can be translated as be alert, or my personal favorite, be awake. Be awake. The world is dying today because Christians are sleeping. Because we go to our churches, because, because we're passive, we're apathetic, we're asleep. We don't know what's going on. We're not worried about what's going on. We're not interested in what's going on. We're asleep. He's saying, be awake, be alert, be watchful. Usually when Paul used the term, it's one of two contexts. He's either saying, watch, be watchful for the return of Christ, or watch out for false teachers. In the immediate context, the immediate passage, it's a little bit difficult to, to see what Paul is, how he's using it. But if you were to read the entirety of 1 Corinthians it would seem that he's challenging the church to both watch themselves in terms of their personal righteousness and to watch in light of Christ's return. To be a certain way because Christ is coming back. And the church at Corinth has already had a lot of issues that Paul dealt with earlier in the text. And he's saying, look, watch yourselves because Christ is coming. He's challenging them to stay awake, to be attentive, because Jesus is going to come back and you want to be aware You want to be serving the Lord when he comes. You want to be engaged in discipleship. You want to be growing. You want to be spiritually maturing. You want to be doing these things. So stay watchful because Jesus is coming. Romans 13, 11 through 14, he puts it this way. Excuse me. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. 
For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You sit here and say, well, you know, a lot of that doesn't apply to me. That's fine. That's good. That's the way it should be. But in terms of gratifying the desires of the flesh, Paul leaves it purposely vague there. And he's saying, look, don't do it. Don't satisfy those desires. Don't satisfy the desires of the flesh. But put on instead Jesus Christ and walk as children of light. Again, it's the idea of wake up and be what you ought to be in Christ. In Ephesians 5, 8 through 14, he says it this way. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Again, there's the idea here that as Christians, Christ has shown in your hearts, so wake up, go out into the world, and let the light of Christ shine through you into the darkness of the world. Again, the gates of hell will not prevail against the power of Christ lived out in the life of the Christian. And the Christian who goes boldly walking in the light and the power of his Lord to conquer in the name of Christ. He's challenging Paul, the church, to stay awake. Staying awake means being aware and alert. Again, the fact that Jesus is coming, that our time is short, and that we have the light to live and be awake by. You understand that in what Christ has given you in the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and in Scripture, that you have the knowledge that you need in knowing how to live and in knowing what needs to be done. You see, it's one thing to sit there and say, well, you know what, I, man, I, I, don't know what, I don't even know what I could do. You simply start by telling people about Jesus, by doing the right things according to Scripture, by adopting the right attitudes according to Scripture, by cultivating the right mindsets according to Scripture, by doing the things that Scripture has already said, look, this is the will of God for you. And we start by doing those things, and then God opens up other doors, and he shows us other things, and we start going in those directions as well. But it starts by simply telling others about Christ and by taking our faith seriously and what it's doing to us and how it ought to change us. There's four areas, I think in particular, that we need to be aware and watchful in the culture. And the first is our families. I I hope you're being watchful of your family and what's going on in the home. Because the family is the key to our nation. You lose the family, you've lost your nation. I, I don't care who the president, I don't care who the senators and the congressmen, I don't care what policies they pass. You lose the family, you've lost your nation. And that's what's happened. You've got communities where the family's gone, and it's chaos. It's disorder. You need the family. And our families are under attack, are they not? Everywhere you turn, they want to redefine what a family is. 
Look, I don't care if you're if you believe in biblical creation or evolutionists, but but it's pretty certain there's there's two specific genders and they serve a role. And that's it. Doesn't matter how you feel, doesn't matter what you think, there are two. Families are under attack, it's the key. The family's also a responsibility. It's not entered into lightly. Look, I heard many years ago, and I think it's true as a talk radio host, and this was 10 years ago, I realized the debate's somewhat over, but they were discussing homosexual marriage and, and what's most dangerous. And at this time, the pop singer Britney Spears was in the news because she she just got married in Vegas and 24 hours later got divorced. And it was, it was a news story in that, you know, that cycle. And the guy made, I think, a great point. He said, listen, Christians want to go on about how homosexual marriage will destroy families and destroy marriage. He said, but what Britney Spears do, has done has done more to destroy the concept of the sanctity of marriage than any homosexual marriage has done. Look, there's truth in that. When even heterosexual couples take marriage lightly, when it's one of those things where you, man, you can go out to Vegas and you can get married and divorced in 24 hours, that doesn't really help the sanctity of marriage. When we have couples and there's, and there's disorder and there's conflict and there's backbiting and there's a refusal to deal with it, that doesn't help the sanctity of marriage. See, our families are a responsibility. It's hard work. Every individual in here who's in a family, everybody, knows that. It's hard work. And families, we know, can change the course of nations. You think about the Kennedys. Agree with them, like them, dislike them. They've changed the course of a nation. The Grahams change the course of a nation. The Hitlers changed the course of a nation. The Booths, John Wilkes Booth, changed the course of a nation. What goes on in your home can affect the world. How we're raising our kids, whether or not we're active and involved in the lives of our kids, change a nation, changes a world. And if I may be bold in the family, Dad, you're the key. You're the leader in the home. You set the standard. Like it or not, that's what God ordained. You set the standard. And being dad, being a husband, it's not just paying bills. Sure, that's part of it. But do you know your kids? I mean, really know your kids. Are you active in their lives? Are you aware of what's going on? Aware of what's going on with your wife? Look, gentlemen, unfortunately, sometimes... We are inconsiderate, unloving, unapproachable jerks. Right? Or am I the only one? <laughs> so, so don't be that. It's that easy. When you realize, hey, I'm being a jerk. Stop! Maybe I, I shouldn't say this. It's unloving. Then don't. Think about it. In other words... Be an intentional dad, not an accidental dad. Be active. Be involved. There's a reason if you go to Ephesians. Look, it says, yeah, wives, submit to your husbands. And, and this is not, you know, maybe good theology, but I like it. And that the idea of submit is, is women duck so, God can hit your, or so that God can hit your husband. And, and that may be the case. But there's a reason then that he says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. What does that mean? Self-sacrifice sacrificially love your wife. 
She comes first. Not you, not your buddies. Your wife comes first. And if you can't do that, you don't get married. But she comes first. Second to that with the kids, dads, the kids are next. Again, not your buddies, not your your hunting partners, not your work, your kids. Love your wives. And then you have the kids. Obey your parents. That's the way it is. Are they always right? No. (laughs) But you obey them anyway. Because you'll make the same mistakes someday. I make mistakes. Micaiah, nothing. All right. I make mistakes sometimes. Do I expect him to obey me? Yeah. That's part of the role. None of us are perfect. We all mess up. But if that's the, the point then is you do the best you can, and you adhere to Scripture. So we're losing our families. Are you watchful? Are you awake? Are you aware? Because, again, if our families fail, our nation fails. But secondly, are you watchful in your church? I, one of my, my favorite quotes, I know Mr. Lopez brought it out a while ago, but uh, I actually heard it from a Methodist minister, but it's still one of my favorite quotes on the church, and it's, the church is like Noah's Ark. Sometimes it stinks, but where else are you going to go? And, and look, that's true. As, as we look around, there's, there's nobody in here, again, that's perfect. We're a bunch of broken, bruised, hurting, backbiting, jealous people. That's the church. That's what we, and look, we need each other. I, I would not be comfortable in a church full of perfect people. Neither would you. So we're broken, we're bruised, we're busted, and we need each other desperately for spiritual maturity. I need you because there are areas where I'm rough around the edges, and you need me because there's areas where you're rough around the edges. And working together, it's that idea of iron sharpening iron. You need your church. Love your church. Be active and involved in your church. Look, we have a business meeting, and less than half of membership shows up. You understand it's your money that we're voting on to spend, and you're not here. And a lot of times, like if you were to look at politicians and you're like, man, they take my tax dollars, they spend all this, I wish I had a voice. You have a voice here and nobody comes. It's your money. So show up business meetings, be a part of that, understand the doctrine that we have. Why? Because it's your soul. It's your eternity. You're going to give an account of what was taught, of what the church believed, of whether or not it was scripturally accurate. You have to know. So do you understand the doctrine of your church, what we teach, what we're all about? Search the scriptures. Why? Because it's your spiritual maturity. When you have somebody who's preaching, you should follow along. You should search the scriptures to see whether or not we're accurately giving you the truth because it's your spiritual maturity that's at stake. It's your understanding of truth. So search the scriptures. Own the leadership. It's your responsibility. As the leadership of the church goes, so will go the church. And what I mean by own is is be active and involved. Know who's on the boards. Know what's going on. And own both the mistakes and the the responsibilities that come along with it. Look, I know we're without a pastor right now, but even when we get a pastor, the health of the church will be determined by the health of the congregation. Own the leadership. Respect your elders. They pay the bills. This is statistically true. 
the older members of the congregation make up most of the giving. They keep the lights on. And so what they think matters. Respect the youth because it's the future. All right, it is the church. It it was pointed out actually last week. They're not just the church of tomorrow. They are the church of today. You understand then, you respect everybody in the body of Christ. And we're active and involved and we love each other and we work with each other. We're watchful in our church. Three, you've got to be watchful of yourself. One of the things I tell my students all the time is people will tell you, like when you go on dates, to be yourself. That is terrible advice. Do not be yourself. Because some of them are weird, okay? Uh, so, so don't be yourself. Be something better than yourself, all right? And that's what we try to do in a lot of cases. We put on appearances, and look, that's not always bad, all right? But, but there is a, a serious side to that in that you can't be yourself. Why? Because you're a sinner. Jeremiah seventeen nine. the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, if you were to buy into the lies of the world today, oh, be yourself and follow your heart and all this nonsense. We spent three days at Disney. Follow your heart. That's terrible advice. Because your heart's evil. It will destroy you. And it will lead you to destruction. So what do we do? We conform to the image of Christ. Let me ask you, the song that was mentioned earlier, are you honest with yourself? It can be easy to set... And, and tear other people apart. But have you ever looked in the mirror and identified what in you needs to be changed? If you're surrounded by busted friendships and you're like, man, all my friends are jerks, maybe it's not the friends. How much self-evaluation goes on? What do we need to change individually? Where are we at in our growth? Watch ourselves. Why? Because our hearts are evil. And be conformed to the image of Christ. And lastly, in this section, this watchful, I think this is a key thing. It's our culture. You know the most powerful weapon that evil has today is entertainment media? The most powerful weapon for evil today is entertainment media. That's talking about the world, the devil, the flesh. Those three things that are your, your core enemies, their most powerful tool is entertainment media. What's going on in the theaters, on TVs, and what's playing over the radio more powerful than any other weapon they've got because it moves hearts. You've been told, follow your heart, follow your emotions. They can move the emotions in with a good song. The emotions then lead you to take terrible, poor action and make heart-wrenching, terrible choices. Andrew Fletcher, a famous British politician of about 400 years ago, made the statement once, let me write the songs of a nation. He said ballad, but let me write the songs of a nation. I care not who writes its laws. You understand what he's saying? And how true that is? Let me write the songs of a nation, and I care not who writes its laws. Because entertainment media does more to influence a culture than anything else. This goes back to watching our homes as well, our families, and what's going on inside. You say, well, this sounds like legalism. You're going to tell me what I can or cannot. I'm not going to tell you what you can or cannot listen to, but I'm going to tell you there are some things that righteousness does not allow. That as righteousness works in the heart and the life and the mind, there are some things it doesn't turn on, that it doesn't rejoice in, that it's not okay with. That's just the content of character, the content of what's in the soul, of what's in the mind. The spirit of this age is terrifying. 
absolutely terrifying. Our culture, our young people in particular, seem determined to destroy themselves, looking for meaning, for purpose, for love, for self-expression. And they've unleashed, we're tearing fences down left and right without ever asking why they were put up to begin with. Why they're there. Why previous cultures thought this was not a good idea. You know what, we don't care, we tear it down and we're going to move on anyway. That is a bad idea. So we need to understand the culture. Hollywood understood a long time ago if they can get you to laugh at something, they can get you to accept it. If they can get you to laugh at it, they can get you to think it's okay. They're brilliant with it. And this is why, if you again, you, you understand the entertainment world, you can see, you can mark the, the trend or the, the, the downslide, if you will, the downgrade is movies and TVs and music even, the things that were unacceptable 40 years ago, now today nobody bats an eye at. If they can get you to sing along or laugh, they've got you. You understand our politicians, they don't make policies out of their own intellect and out of their own will. They make, pol- they make policy on the basis of what the culture is doing. However the winds of culture are blowing, that's what they're going to follow because they want to get reelected. So they're, they're, they believe whatever you believe, the majority, whatever the culture seems to hold to. Politicians follow the people, the spirit of the age. So be awake, be aware, be watchful. Secondly, stand firm in the faith as Paul goes on. Be watchful, but then secondly, he says, stand firm in the faith. His second challenge to the Corinthians is the main point here. Stand firm in your faith. Look, if you're going to stand firm in the Christian faith, the first thing is you've got to understand it. You've got to know it. Now, a couple months ago, I had to go through ordination, and look, nobody outside of ministry should really have to go through that. In fact, there are many times I was like, why am I doing this? But you should understand doctrine at a basic level. You should understand the great themes of Scripture. You should understand why we believe Jesus is God. How do we, how do we reconcile the, the 100% human side of Jesus with the 100% deity of Jesus? What do we mean by the fact that he was sinless, the virgin birth, the Trinity? How is Scripture inspired and inerrant? Why do we believe this book over other books? These are things that come in understanding and knowing our faith. You're betting your soul on this. Understand it. Know it. Study it. Seek it out. One of my professors used to say, Scripture is like a gold mine, an overproducing gold mine. Yeah, there are some nuggets of gold that you can just walk in and pick up off the ground, but there's others that you're going to have to dig for. You're going to have to do the hard work for. Are you doing the hard work? Are you digging into Scripture? Understand it. Know it. C.S. Lewis, great quote, Uh, talking to the students at Oxford during World War II in a lecture called Learning During Wartime. And he makes the point, he's saying, why are you in school? Why are you doing this now? And he says, this is why. Because to be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet the enemy on their own grounds, would be to throw down our weapons and betray our uneducated brethren who have under God no defense but us against the attacks of the world. Bad or good philosophy must exist because bad philosophy needs to be countered. Who is that to? That's to the church. We should know theology because there's bad theology out there that needs to be countered. And you are the individuals to do it. Not just the pastors, not just Christian leaders, but the people in the congregation. You all fight the battle day to day. Understand what you believe and tell others. And that's the second thing in this. And standing firm to your faith, what do you got to do? You got to proclaim it. You have to tell people. 
Is it hard? Yes. Is it awkward? Yes. I mean, I don't, when we were at Disney, I didn't send on the channel and be like, by the way, if you died today, would you go to hell? It can be difficult and awkward to share your faith, but is it important? Absolutely. So we proclaim it. We go out, we tell others about Christ, what we really believe. If we believe it, then we should proclaim it. This, again, the command all throughout Scripture, whether to the prophets, to communicate the will of God and the word of the Lord, whether to the apostles and to us in Matthew, in the Great Commission or in Acts chapter 1, all throughout Scripture, the command to go and to tell others what Jesus has done, not just singing about it in a church or hearing about it in the context of a pew, but to go out and again not let the gates of hell prevail against us in sharing the gospel. And then third, in standing firm in the faith, what do we have to do? We have to live it. Living out the faith is the most important test of personal belief. You can sit all day long, and I tell my students this, you can sit all day long in class and tell me what you believe, but all I have to do is watch your life to really get an idea of what you believe. Because you live what you believe. What your core philosophies, what your core worldview is, will come out in your actions. You can say, oh, I'm a Christian, but if you live like the devil, then your worldview is devilish. So what you really believe comes out in the life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great martyr, World War II, this is a, uh, not exactly what he said, but it is in some what he said. To believe is to obey, and to obey is to believe. That is, only those <clears throat> who are obeying the book really believe it. And those who really believe it will obey it. At least they will seek it. It doesn't mean we're perfect. Again, it's not setting up some legalistic standard of righteousness. But it is to say again that what is righteous will seek righteousness. We will seek the standard. It's discipleship. It's living the life every day. It's not going from emotional high to emotional high. It's the daily work of the Christian faith. My, I think my favorite quote on this in terms of living it, discipleship, actually comes from an atheist, Friedrich Nietzsche. And he was talking about just doing things consistently, that adhering to a belief system consistently is what makes life worth living. And the way he put it this is this way, in sum, that it's a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. That's the Christian faith. A long obedience in the same direction. I've heard people say, well, it's a distance race. Look, I don't even think it's a distance race. I think it's a walk. I think it's a consistent daily walk in the same direction, walking with the Lord, not again seeking. Uh, and yes, we're going to hit those, those mountaintops and those emotional eyes, and that's fine and good, but that is not the sum of the Christian faith. The sum of the Christian faith is daily living, every day being the same, consistent and growing in the faith. So live it, all right, and standing firm in the faith. In the text, again, in verse 13, his third thing, and I love this, he says, act like men. Now, you may have your translation a little bit differently. Some of the newer, tra- or some, some of the translations rather try to take it and make it less uh, manly uh, and more sort of indefinite. They may put act courageously or be courageous. Um, but that's, I think, the interesting thing is the word, the Greek word, andrizomai, actually has the root, one of the root terms for a man, and that is andre. That's why the, the, the name Andrew and the disciples literally means manly. All right, and in the term for uh, murder in the Greek language, uh, androphonos, 
you see the same thing again, andra. And so androsomai, which has come to mean in the Greek culture at that time, courageous, actually has its root form in that act like a man. In other words, Paul is appealing to a stereotype, and that is men are courageous, or at least they ought to be. And so he's saying, look, be courageous. Act like men should act. And I love that be, in this regard, manly. Man up. The world again, the church is dying for individuals to be courageous, for men to act like men, to step up to get in the church to have us be leaders again, to be scholars of the word again, to be defenders of our homes and defenders of our families, defenders of our church, to be courageous in a world that hates us. It may not be true now, and it may not be true of our particular youth group, but there was a study done years ago among teenage boys in youth groups, and they found that in a majority of cases across the nation, at least where they, and again, the case where they did the studies, the most difficult thing in the world was to get guys to step up and lead in the youth group. You can get girls to do it. I, I've seen it in my classroom. If I have volunteers to pray, I'll get four, five, six girls to raise their hands. I won't get a guy. Why? Why aren't we teaching our sons to be leaders in the faith, to be courageous, to be bold, to take a stand? teaching in a Christian school, I'll tell my students, look, we can have spiritual emphasis week, we can do Bible class, we do Bible class every day, we can do chapel, but until the men in our school, the boys, the teenagers, step up and act courageously and live the faith, that's when you'll see change. That's when you'll see movement in the spiritual realm. So act like men, be courageous. He says, fourthly, be strong to hold fast, to show strength in the face of opposition. The understanding is that strength isn't strength unless it endures the testing. You can look strong, you can have mass, and you can be cut and find all these kinds of things, but if your muscles can't actually carry the weight, you're not strong. You look good, but you're all just sub, you're, you're all just style, rather, no substance. Superman, a fictional character, we know, but Superman's not Superman in principle. He doesn't just dress in tights and a cape because... It makes him feel manly. He's Superman because if you shoot him, bullets bounce off. And he can knock you through a wall and run faster than a locomotive and all that kind of stuff. That is, he's Superman in the testing. He's Superman when it's tough. He's got the strength necessary. Look, Christian, you've got to be strong in this world. The world is going to test you. The world doesn't like you. The devil doesn't like you. Your flesh doesn't like you. And you are at war with those three things. And and you may not like it. You may not want to be. But they are at war with you. So be strong. Your faith isn't tested here. Being in the pew and and how loud we sing maybe or, or all the things that we experience in church, this is not the test of your faith. The test of your faith will come this week when you could get away with things that nobody will know about. And you say no. When you could say the wrong thing and the wrong person at the wrong time, and you don't. When you could adopt the wrong attitude and the wrong emotion because it's easy, but you don't. That's where faith is tested. That's where the strength of your faith comes out. So be strong. Paul telling the church at Corinth, yeah, implicit in this, it's tough. So be strong. The Christian faith is not for the weak. I understand we, we say, look, it's for the weak because we're sinners. I get that. But living it day to day, it's for the strong. 
for those who ground their strength in Christ and in the power that he's given you in the Holy Spirit. Lastly, in verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. I want you to understand in all of this, love is, is the knot that ties it all together. That we are what we are because of love. Not the the wishy-washy, lovey-dovey nonsense that the world extols, praises. But a real, gritty, willful, unconditional, even when it hurts, cross of Calvary type of love. That is what we're to have. It's why we are what we are. Love tells the truth even when it hurts. Not just us, but the person we're telling it to. Love binds up wounds. It doesn't pour salt in them. It doesn't cut it deeper. Love forgives unconditionally. Love casts out fear. Love endures. You go to 1 Corinthians 13. It's why Paul writes that chapter. The most important thing about you is love. And it's not, again, this wishy-washy, well, I just let people do what they want because I love them. No. Love means that, that you stand for righteousness because you love them. And anything that's unrighteous will destroy you. The best warriors, best soldiers, we don't wage war because of hatred or fear. Wage war because they love. Because they love something or someone so much, they're willing to, to go to war, to defend it, to protect it, to fight for it, to ensure its peace. We as Christians... We're not motivated by fear or hatred, but love. It's because we love the people in the world. We don't have to agree with their sin to love them. But it's because we love them. And again, it's this real, genuine, gritty, biblical love. And it's what the world needs. The love that's revealed on the cross. And as we as Christians, again, walk in the life, as as we are awake, as we're watchful, as we stand in the faith, as we act like men, and as we... Uh, are strong, and we do this in love, then the love of Christ is revealed in our hearts, and that's what starts to impact our culture and change lives. But it starts with us taking it seriously. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time again to come around your word for what's recorded there. Lord, for the encouragement in these areas. I ask that you'd be with each Christian here as you know their hearts and their minds and what they're dealing with today and this week. I ask that you'd be with them, grant them wisdom and strength. I ask that you'd be with those here who maybe don't know you as their Savior, as you've worked in their hearts today and shown them their need. I ask, Lord, that you'd give them the courage to come to trust Christ or to do what needs to be done. We thank you for your love for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.